0: Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Joe McCormick. My normal co-host Robert Lamb is out of town this week, so I am bringing you an interview episode. Uh, it's an interview with Brandon Fibs, who is the host of a new podcast on the iHeartRadio network called Nine Days in July, which is a it's a profile of each of the nine days of the Apollo Eleven mission in nineteen sixty nine, the mission that landed on the moon. Uh, I've started listening to this podcast I'm a few episodes in and I'm hooked I think Brandon is doing an excellent job with this and it goes into some really incredible depth so I had a conversation with Brandon about the Apollo 11 mission and about this podcast that he's put together it was a really fun conversation and I think you're really going to enjoy it before we jump into the interview here uh, let's just play the trailer for nine days in July to give you a taste of things to come ignition sequence start You
1: think you know the story of Apollo 11, but you don't. What you know is only a small part of the most profound human achievement in history. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. Less than three weeks after launching the first American into space, a trip that lasted only 15 minutes... The president went before Congress and charged the country with landing on the moon before the end of the decade. And why? So that we could wallop the Russians. This was one of the most tumultuous eras in American history. The profoundly unpopular Vietnam War was raging on without an end in sight. Back home at the Democratic National Convention, thousands of demonstrators clashed violently with police.
0: They said they were there to protest the war, poverty, racism, and other social ills. Some of them were also determined to provoke a confrontation.
1: The United States seemed to be coming apart at the seams. America needed a reason to reach for a greatness beyond our misfortunes. We needed Apollo 11. Apollo 11,
0: the launch
1: team wishes you good luck and Godspeed. Pulling off Kennedy's audacious vision required hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands of companies, and tens of billions of dollars.
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things,
1: not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Using never-before-heard mission audio, I'm going to take you through the family lives that fueled the astronauts, the political intrigue that cleared the way, and the collective drive of the country that pushed us into the future. This is 9 Days in July. New episodes arrive every Thursday through February 6th. Listen to 9 Days in July on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Well, without any further delay, I think we're going to jump right into my conversation with Brandon Fibbs. Hey Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you so very much. Uh, So I guess, first of all, would you like to talk a little bit about your own background, maybe introduce yourself and talk about how you got so interested in spaceflight?
1: Yeah. Uh, My name's Brandon Fibbs. I am... uh, I've spent the last roughly 10, 15 years in uh, film and television. I actually began as a a film critic, uh, writing about other people's films and television shows, and then realized, I want people to write about mine. I'm going to go get into production myself. So moved to L.A. and stumbled into science documentaries. I went to LA like everyone wants to go. You want to make big movies. And my first production was Cosmos, A Space-Time Odyssey with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And then I realized working on that, I don't want to, this is the kind of stuff I want to do. I want to, I want to light people on fire for for amazing science. And so I was able to, by and large, work mostly in science documentaries, worked with Morgan Freeman on Through the Wormhole for a couple seasons and uh, The Story of God with Morgan Freeman and, and a number of science channel specials and whatnot. And that's, that's really where, um, that's really what, you know, I, I found a lot of tremendous satisfaction in that. And then recently I've kind of been migrating to podcasts. There are just so many ways to tell uh, extraordinary science stories and uh, history stories. So I'm one of these people who, if I could go back in time and tell my young self, hey, Brandon, here are the things that are gonna light you on fire and you're gonna be passionate about when you're an adult, you're gonna probably wanna change your life trajectory right now. You're gonna wanna change the stuff you studied. And rather than study uh, English literature and filmmaking, you're gonna wanna study science, Um, but I didn't. And so now I'm at the place in my life where I'm like, okay, I, if I could go back in time and be a scientist, I would, but all of my all of my work experience and stuff is in, in television documentaries and whatnot and now podcasting. And so let's find the Venn diagram of life where science and entertainment overlap and let's drop right down in that little section there and let's make amazing things that popularize science and basically, you know, let's find extraordinary stories that are going to warp people's minds. And uh, so that's kind of my like
0: life goal these days. Wow, I can really identify with you there. Actually, I, I also am from a humanities background, but like later in life, got the science bug, and in some ways, kind of wished I'd done things different. But also, I don't know. It it, it helps to be able to to bring that kind of storytelling sensibility to science as well.
1: Well, and the and the longer I've done it, the more I've realized, and the, and the more like actual scientists that I speak with and in interview or or befriend, the more I realize that this sort of advocacy is so critical. For what they do, the, the, the there's they're busy being scientists. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, it needs people like us to say, look, world, at what the incredible things that they are doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh now I know uh, I, I've read that you also have experience as a pilot though where you were piloting uh, an S3 Viking, is that right?
1: Not a pilot, so oh, okay. to use to use a film metaphor, um I was a combination of Goose from Top Gun, the guy who sat <laughs> behind the pilot in the okay. S3. And I was a combination with jo- uh, with Jonesy, the guy from the Hunt for a October, who was calling Crazy Ivans. Okay. My job was to hunt submarines. So the S three Viking was a patrol aircraft, a sub hunting aircraft, and we would fly in the ocean, and we would drop sonobuoys, and these sonobuoys would release hydrophones, and we could deploy them to various depths, and we would listen for submarines. And based on the mathematical logarithmic transcripts that would come up on my screen, I could tell you if, if I was very lucky, you know. Exactly what kind of submarine we were flying over, whether it was turning left, turning right, diving, ascending, whatever, and sometimes specifically specific submarine we were flying over, so that yeah I was uh, I was the backseater
0: okay now uh how did you end-, end up doing this like a lot of these uh people who ended up in the Apollo program, did you long have a passion for for flight?
1: I think that you know like any uh, Red-blooded American kid, you know, you grow up loving dinosaurs and space and and flying and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually, when I got out of, I had started college and then realized, you know, I'm going to need some more money for college and blah blah blah. And I had taken an internship. I'd done an internship in Washington D.C., a congressional internship, working for my congressman on Capitol Hill, and I was just surrounded by military guys and just all kinds of different things. And I thought, hey, this, this looks fantastic. This would be a way to kind of give back to my country, but also get what I kind of need to further my life and money for school and whatnot. And so it was actually there that I kind of came up with the idea, joined the military, and then spent most of my, uh, most of my time in the military was actually overseas. It was in Sicily, spent three, three years in Sicily. And Three extraordinary years, I should say, and just spent all of that time in Europe and traveling all over Europe and uh, even West Africa. And it was an extraordinary thing. But, yeah, the, I, w- I I thought at the time, actually, that I might be pursuing um, – a flight, And then perhaps even, hey, look, what if I should, you know, should I try to become an astronaut? And then I just realized, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier in terms of, like, I should have been a scientist. There are also certain things that I realize I can't do that my mind's not exactly made for. And a lot of that is complex math and, and some really complex, you know, physics and stuff like that. The kind of things I would actually need to become an astronaut. And uh, so I was like, OK, let's just stick with the let's stick with the storytelling and uh, tell the stories of, of these people who can do those complex math and, and stuff like that that you can't do, Brandon.
0: That's interesting. Well, so to turn to that story, I, I guess, uh, can, can you start off just by giving us the the top line on nine days in July? Tell us, uh, you know, you know what, what do you want people to know if they remember one sentence about this podcast?
1: Yeah. My, my friend and our executive producer, uh, one of our executive producers, Andrew Jacobs, came up with the idea. And he basically said, We are so familiar with the sort of sound bites of Apollo 11. We know like some sound bites from launch. We know a lot of sound bites from the landing, but that's about it. Like nobody knows the story of Apollo 11. And so our idea was it's a nine day mission. Let's have nine episodes, and each episode is going to focus as real-time as possible on each day of the mission, and let's tell that story. Now, of course, most of what goes on in a spacecraft traveling to and from the moon is is incomprehensible technobabble. And so once you strip that out, there's a lot less story going on, particularly on those transit days. And so we knew that we needed to tell more than just that story. And so the idea was that we came up with, okay, let's tell the story that is going to contextualize everything that we're going to be hearing on that spacecraft. Let's tell the biographies of all of these astronauts. Let's learn who the people in mission control are. Let's talk to scientists about what the moon is made of and how it was formed. Let's learn about the political dynamics of the space race and and, and communism and, and fighting against Russia to, to beat everyone to the moon. Let's, let's take all of these stories and tell these stories and bounce back and forth between them and the spacecraft so that when you walk away after nine episodes, you not only understand intimately what happened on this mission and you know these guys who worked on this in a really profoundly – Human way, but you also come away with a much greater understanding of how we got to where where we were when we went to the moon, who everyone was, and 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 what the political sort of impetus was to to do it in the first place.
0: Yeah, it's a really engrossing approach. I, I'm a couple of episodes in, and I've been uh, really enjoying the show so far. Uh, so maybe we, we should. Uh, turn to these these figures like Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. Can you give uh, a, a brief sketch of, of who these three astronauts were?
1: Yeah. So Neil Armstrong and a lot of people who, who didn't kind of know more of his story were kind of introduced to him recently in the film First Man last year. And th- that was a really good kind of examination. You know, I had a lot of friends who who said th- they they found Neil Armstrong really inaccessible because Ryan Gosling's portrayal was such that he kind of kept the audience at a distance, at an arm's length, and didn't really—he didn't feel human. And what I told them is that's who Neil Armstrong was. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were kind of—what we would have described at the time as squares. They were sort of very straight-laced and uptight, and and it's one of the things that ruined, frankly, both of their marriages in the long run— um, they were just so singularly focused on what they did and their jobs um, that they, to the exclusion of everything else. And then you have Mike Collins, who was jovial and and quick-witted, and he was the jokester. He was the prankster. He was always, he was the one that you'd want to go have a beer with. Mm-hmm. And And none of these guys actually even really got along. I mean, they got along just fine, but they weren't friends. They didn't have some sort of like you know, off-campus sort of relationship in which they hung out. Um, Any of the pictures that we have in Life magazine and stuff like that, showing them all hanging out was completely created, fabricated for, you know, the magazine. It was just like to sell copy. But what we needed were three men who were at the top of their intellectual game, who worked together, who were professionals, who were the best people suited for this particular job. And that's what these three guys were. They all came. They were all uh, aviators. They all came from flight experience. Neil was in the Navy. The other two guys were in the Air Force. And they all came out of the Korean War and some of them from test flight experience and just basically pushing the boundaries to do the most extraordinary things possible until – The most extraordinary thing human beings have ever done was presented to them and dropped in their laps.
0: Now, we know that uh, it wasn't just the three astronauts, of course. Could you talk a little bit about the the cathedral, about the flight controllers and the mission planners and all of the, you know, the, the thousands of, uh, of support figures who made the mission possible?
1: You bet. You know, and, and I'll just keep doing what I'm about to do just because I think it's a really, in, a really accessible way for people to identify what's going on. But, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, you know, that did a wonderful job of kind of setting up as much time as you spent in the spacecraft, you also spent in Mission Control. And Mission Control had four rotating teams of two dozen people at all of these consoles, and every console uh, oversaw a different aspect of the flight, a different aspect of the spacecraft, or, you know, you'd even have doctors who are monitoring the health of the astronauts themselves. And these shifts would just, these guys would just rotate through the shifts. But even within Mission Control, you had whole offices, whole squadrons of people who were supporting each one of those consoles. So, writ large you had hundreds if not thousands of people technically especially thousands when you consider that all of the companies that built the spacecraft and did all these things were were only a phone call away you have thousands of people supporting the mission every single day um, and, and it was an extraordinary basically in many ways some of the people in mission control were call were uh, referred to as the co-pilots Of Apollo 11, and that's in in many ways very true. They were monitoring every aspect of the flight. They were there for every aspect of the flight. And yet the only voice you ever hear, however, um, on any of these tapes is Capcom, because none of these mission controllers talk to the spacecraft, that would just get too confusing. So everyone went through Capcom, the capsule communicator, who was also an astronaut, so that he understood everything that was going on in mission control, and he intimately understood what it was like to be on the inside of that spacecraft. And so he was the funnel through which all the communications ran.
0: Uh, yeah, you can imagine how chaotic it would have gotten otherwise. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, now, among the flight controllers, one of the strange facts mentioned in uh, one of your early episodes is that uh, in that room, the average age was about 26. Why yeah. so young? What's going on there? So you have space
1: flight's a new science, right? Like we we we've have these visions of like the Mercury program and the Gemini program and then the Apollo program. There was not a whole lot of years between all of those programs. Um, you know, you're talking less than 10 years of human spaceflight. By the time we landed on the moon, we'd only been going into space for a couple of years. And more than that, the things that got us there, the things that enabled us to do it were computers and computers were brand spanking new. And so it's just like today. If you, um, you know, when we were growing up, our parents were always telling us, hey, how do you stop the flashing 12 uh, you know, 12 o'clock on the VCR. Kids, I need you to fix that for me. And the reason they were calling on the kids is because it was effortless for young people to integrate with technology. And these days, of course, it's, I, you know, how do I fix Facebook or Instagram's acting up or, you know, TikTok or whatever? You ask your kids or you ask your grandkids because they just get it intuitively. Um, and that's exactly what it was like here. Younger people were the ones who understood computers. Computers were brand spanking new. And so basically, if you want to go to space, with new technology you need people who understand that new technology and so mission control had was made up like you said 26 years old was the average age and for some of these guys for a great many of these guys it was their very first job right out of college and they're thrust with like you know into this being responsible for the most extraordinary thing humans have ever done
0: yeah it's kind of hard to imagine actually um now, another thing that you talk about in the podcast is the fact that, of course, uh, NASA was a very male-dominated work culture at the time. Yeah. But you also mentioned the story of uh, the, these, uh, like, math experts who would check the work of the engineers, many of them female mathematicians, sometimes called at the time computresses, like Poppy mm-hmm. Northcutt. Can, can mm-hmm. you talk about that experience? Poppy Northcutt was one of
1: my favorite interviews on this show. And unfortunately, time constraints and different things have have trimmed what you're going to hear from her. But Poppy was – Poppy needs her own podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was someone who – yeah, she, she got degrees in mathematics and she was brought in to check the men's work. And of course, you can imagine in this time frame in the mid-60s and late-60s th- – there were a lot of guys who didn't exactly think they needed their work checked and if it did it certainly didn't need to be checked by this young 27-year-old blonde in a miniskirt sort of situation right and the amount of sexism that she faced there's a moment that i mentioned in the podcast of i, I believe it was an, uh, the abc anchor was interviewing her and he 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 specifically said that like what's it like being a beautiful young woman in a miniskirt around here <laughs> among all these men and it it's but she persevered like she she had this mindset of I recognize that if I'm going to make a difference, I have to push through this. I have to be stronger than this. I have to tolerate some of this. The stuff I don't have to tolerate, I'm going to call out. But she was extraordinarily uh, important in not only Apollo 11, getting them to and from the moon. Her, Her calculations helped them with all of their orbits and getting out of orbit and returning back to Earth. She also played a key component in Apollo 13 when they had so many problems going on in their spacecraft. She was there for many of the Apollo missions. Now she is a advocate. She became a lawyer. She got out of doing science, then became a lawyer, and she advocates for women's rights and feminism, and she took on the Houston— police and the Houston Fire Department and made sure that women could integrate into those uh, those institutions. And even today, she is just on the front lines of women's rights issues um, as a lawyer and advocate. And she has, like I said, she needs her own podcast. She's extraordinary.
0: All right. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. And we're back. All right, maybe we should talk a bit about the hardware and the technology that made the mission possible. Uh, one of the first things I think that would deserve attention here is the Saturn V rocket, which I remember, I, I don't recall which uh, astronaut it was, but it was somebody who had been lifted up on it, describing it as a living, breathing organism underneath them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what's, um, what, what makes the Saturn V so special in the history of space exploration? The Saturn V
1: is the largest, heaviest, most powerful rocket human beings have ever created. NASA is currently building the SLS, the Space Launch System. This is the rocket that's going to be returning us to the moon in a couple of years and eventually setting us on a path for Mars. But until that is built and tested and first run, the Saturn V remains, 50 years later, the largest, most powerful, heaviest launch vehicle humans have ever built. We we've, Nothing comes close to touching it yet. Um... And it was something that was designed and built, um, was the brainchild um, of Werner von Braun, an ex-Nazi. He was one of the Nazis that uh, the Americans kind of grabbed out of Nazi Germany when, when Germany was falling after World War II. We brought over thousands of Nazis as part of an Operation Paperclip. So Operation Paperclip was this, was this government program in which we seized thousands of, of ex-Nazi scientists and engineers Brought them back to the United States and basically said, hey, you were making some pretty devastating technology, uh, like the V-2 rocket and stuff like that that was raining down fire all over London and lots of other parts of Europe. And, hey, we want you to make those for us, too. And a lot of these guys weren't – they weren't dyed-in-the-wool Nazis. They were conscripted. They were, you know, told to build this or else sort of situations. And once they were out of that, they were able to – say, hey, you know what, what I really want to do is build rockets to send people into space. And the government, U.S. government wasn't interested in that. They wanted to be able to, you know, after World War II, we suddenly found ourselves in a Cold War with Russia. We just a couple years later stumbled into a a second war again with, with in Korea. And so basically they just wanted these guys to design missiles. But. It wasn't until Sputnik suddenly kind of changed the dynamic. And once Russia launched Sputnik and we suddenly realized, and then Sputnik 2 just four weeks later launched a dog into space. Uh, the dog's name was Leica, which is also the name of my dog. Oh. Um, that dog into space suddenly made people realize, oh, wait, that's possible to launch like living creatures into space? And then suddenly people started turning to people like Werner von Braun and others and saying, okay. You have permission now. Start designing real giant big rockets, not just missiles. And so the Saturn V is is yeah, it's the most complex
0: thing that we've ever built. It's the uh, it's the reason we got to the moon. Well, I want to come back to some of those uh, political implications in just a little bit, but to go on with some of the more uh, some of the other technology from the mission. So we've got the Saturn V rocket, and that is that's sort of the launch delivery. Uh, program that, uh, that NASA came up with to get us to the moon was only one of several options that were considered, right? Well, what, were, what was some of the thinking about how to get to the moon and back and what were the other options that we could have tried?
1: Well, so they had a number of different options and the first one was the one that's been popularized in every silly 1950s sort of sci-fi movie you've ever seen. And that is you see you see like sort of a prototypical rocket and the rocket is fully formed and it lands on some on the moon or some outer space planet. People climb out of it and do their thing, climb back into it and it launches back off again. But you you can imagine you've you know everyone's seen pictures of the Saturn V. Something that big Going in one piece, going into space in one complete piece and then landing on the moon again, like something like that's never going to happen. The The weight would just be prohibitive. The size is just so big. And yet people considered that that was one of the options. And then, then they just realized there's no way that Saturn V in that size and weight is even going to get out of orbit, much less land on the moon and get back off of it. Another option was, okay, we launch multiple launches with all of the various little spacecraft, and once they're in Earth orbit, we dock them all together and we do all of these things, and then we take off for the moon. Um, And that was also seen as clearly cost prohibitive. We have numerous launches, blah, blah, blah. What they ultimately came down to was lunar orbit rendezvous. And that is, let's put everything in a single rocket, let's make it big enough to launch into orbit, and then let's do all of our docking that's needed around the moon. And that terrified people at the time, because at the time we came up with that idea, we hadn't hadn't even docked anyone in orbit around Earth. Gemini hadn't even yet achieved that. So everyone was really terrified of hundreds of thousands of miles away doing all of this docking so far away from any sort of help. That could be rendered if they were closer to home, so that kind of terrified people. But ultimately, they realized cost-effective, uh, size-effective gas, gas fuel, everything just made that that one made the most sense. And so they they kind of went with it, and uh, that's how we came up with lunar orbit rendezvous.
0: Now, do you think that the uh, the lunar orbit rendezvous was really the only way we could have reached the moon in the time frame we did? It was
1: very likely the only way we could have reached the moon in the time frame we did. Yeah. It's not necessarily the only way we could have done it. Um, And in fact, there were one of the other options I didn't mention was that option of basically launching certain elements of your mission, landing those remotely without human beings on the surface of the moon, then launching your crew, and then they land on the moon, and what they need is already there waiting for them. That version is already what we're pretty much thinking about in terms of going to Mars, the recognition that a long trip to Mars, the long – you know, it's going to take – I believe it's like six months to get to Mars. You'd have to be on the Martian surface for more than a year before this – the planets were to align for you to even come back again for another like six-month trip. So there, it, like when human beings go to Mars, it's going to be a year's long effort. And that can't all everything, all that infrastructure, all of that hardware can't be contained in a single spacecraft. And so the idea is that is going to have to be requiring multiple launches. You get to Mars, you start generating new rocket fuel for the return from the Martian soil. This is all being done automatically uh, with robots and whatnot. And then so by the time that the Martian astronauts actually land and start doing their exploration, they have habitats set up and everything has been going on that was an option that people considered for the moon as well but people realized kennedy said by the end of the decade i want people walking on the moon by the end of the decade and not just walking on the moon they have to come home safely and to do that they this mission uh profile made the most sense
0: yeah now thinking about that that impetus from kennedy uh of course the moon landing was you know this great scientific achievement but your show frequently stresses the political motivations of the apollo program you know that it was Framed in the words of Kennedy, I think, in 1961, that he said it was a contest between freedom, which for him obviously meant the United States and tyranny, which for him meant the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. How do you think this framing of the uh, of, of space exploration as a kind of um, kind of a war mobilization almost? How did that affect? how the Apollo program progressed. And do you think the same achievements within the same timeframe would have been possible if it were just treated as a kind of peaceful scientific project more the way we think of space exploration today?
1: I don't think we would have gone to the moon if we had done it just for peaceful purposes. Uh, in the exact same way, for the exact same reason that we haven't gone to the moon since, for the exact same reason that we are not on the moon now, that, you know, the, for the exact same reason that we've tried to go to the moon in the past and everything fell short, that we've tried to, you know, do moon missions um, and those fell apart. We need the competition aspect is the thing that, that drove us. And, you know, you when you grow up, you have this kind of simplistic view of the space program. And, and, you know, when you're a kid, you have a simplistic view of lots of things. And, of course, it was just this, yeah, okay, yeah, there's the Russian element of this, but we did this for science and exploration and blah, blah, blah. No, we didn't. And Kennedy's tapes, there were you're going to hear on episode seven, in which we focus specifically on the space race itself, there are tapes that didn't come uh, to light until 2001 of Kennedy in the Oval Office in the White House, talking to various scientific advisors and the head of NASA, James Webb, and basically – and he says, I don't care about space, guys. I don't – I just want to beat the Russians. Give me something that will allow us to embarrass the Russians and and elevate America, um, and let's do that. But I don't care what it is. I don't care about space, only insofar as it's a political gamemanship sort of thing. And, of course, for most of us growing up, Kennedy is this shining example, this this cheerleader for space – and he was that publicly. Privately, he didn't give a damn about it. He just wanted to
0: beat the Russians. Wow. Uh, now, so you're talking about something that would be a sort of symbolic achievement, like you – that would show the world that we were better than the Russians, that would uh, – you, you know, something to to efface them. But I wonder also, I mean, what's the role of, of – uh, People trying to to imagine forward into future military conflicts because obviously they would have had in their recent memory uh, air superiority as a decisive factor in World War II and, and that kind of thing. Were they thinking also along those lines but just going to the next level up? Sure. I mean the Cold War was at its essence – Space was basically
1: just the example that we used to demonstrate to the world and to the Soviet Union that we were more technologically advanced and more powerful. It was all about technology. It was to, to, you know, do it in a kind of a crude sort of way. It was a measuring contest using technology as a yardstick and basically saying, you know, hey, our technology is bigger than yours, our technology is better than yours, and we just proved it. Um, But of course, out of all of that, you know, there's so much U.S. military hardware that we use to this day that came out of the Apollo program, be it the rockets or the satellites, the spy satellites, the, you know, there's so much that, that... it wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the space program. There's also a, a ton of personal stuff. I mean, you wouldn't have your cell phones and you wouldn't have your GPS and satellite TV and and half of the medical advances that have been made over the last 50 years and stuff like that also came out of the space program. And you certainly wouldn't have your laptop. So it's not like there wasn't it was a purely military effort. But the military was more than happy to take the things that NASA learned going to the moon and say, "Hey, how can we use these for for warfighting? We're going to be able to piggyback um, a lot of stuff off of this and uh, and be able to use it against our enemies should should it ever become necessary."
0: Yeah, I know several things you mentioned in the podcast make it clear how enmeshed the space program was in the 1960s with the armed forces. I remember initially a problem with – I don't remember which of the three astronauts from 11 it was, but that one of them uh, was not eligible uh, to to apply to be an astronaut because they were not active duty military. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that was Neil Armstrong. He got out of the military and when he became a test pilot – Um, And was still working with the military and flying all these military aircraft, but he was out of the Navy by that point. He got out of the Navy when he left uh, Korea after his years spent in the Korean War. And yeah, at that time, uh, when Mercury, the Project Mercury, and even into uh, the early days of Gemini, they were only taking military um, personnel. Because there were so few people, they needed, you know, pilots who were... On the cutting edge of things, and you didn't really have civilian pilots flying cutting edge aircraft, so it made sense at that time to pull people from the military. That's NASA still does it to this day. Um, it's not re, it's not restricted to the military anymore, uh, and you certainly have various scientists and stuff like that. But in terms of your pilots, you know, when you were flying the space shuttle, I would bet the vast majority, if not all, of those pilots for the space shuttle still came out of the military.
0: Oh, yeah. So, do you want to say anything else about—this uh, was something that, that caught my interest uh, in those early episodes—the the role of um, cutting-edge aircraft like the X-15 in our sort of escalation towards later spaceflight?
1: Yeah, the X-15 was one of those aircraft that Neil Armstrong flew uh, in his test flight experience. The The X-15 is basically— a rocket. It's basically a missile that has these tiny little stubby wings and a cockpit on the front, um, and it is it can't is not capable of taking off from the ground. It has to be attached to the wing of a bomber and then taken up to altitude, and it is dropped. And you kick on that engine, and then you uh, can can head up. But the X fifteen will fly, basically at the edge of space, and uh, it, the control surfaces on the wings. Those wings are so tiny because it doesn't need them to fly. It it needs thrusters and, and, and uh, uh, little like, micro jets that are embedded across the spacecraft's body or the, the aircraft's body because it acts like a spacecraft once it gets up there to control. It just uses these little puffs of thrusters to, to maneuver once it's uh, up at high altitude. And then it comes in for landings. It glides down and lands in these gigantic um, salt fields these, uh, in California flat flat field
0: uh, I think there 's a terrifying story you tell about uh, I believe it was neil Armstrong who 's flying in one of these and is like uh, trying to descend, but the nose it won 't descend because the nose keeps bouncing off of the top of the atmosphere
1: yes yeah it wouldn 't he couldn 't get it down he was he was running low on fuel it was time to come back home he tried to angle it the 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 plane down it wouldn 't do it it kept bouncing off the atmosphere and bouncing back up. And he was finally able to get it under control, but he completely ran out of fuel and he was coming back toward Edwards Air Force Base, which is outside, far outside Los Angeles. But he was coming down so fast and so uh, out of his flight zone that he was coming like straight down into Pasadena and was able finally to get controls and and bring himself back in. But he landed. It was one of dozens of times that Neil Armstrong practically died Um doing that job because he barely eked it back home in time. And that was that was something that so many of these guys did. You know, if anyone's seen the movie The Right Stuff, you realize how many people, there's that uh, there's that amazing scene in the beginning of The Right Stuff. I think it's Dennis Quaid's character comes in to the bar that's out there in the middle of the desert, and there's the, the wall is covered with all of these smiling faces of guys in uniform and posing in front of planes. And he tells the bartender, he's like, I, he's he's new to, to Edwards Air Force Base. He's like, I'm going to be up there someday. You're gonna you're gonna know who I am. <laughs> and the bartender says, every single one of the people on that wall have died. They were all killed in this in this program testing new aircraft. And That kind of really humbled both him and the audience. You suddenly realize, man, the, all of the technological advances we have made have come um, at the expense of a lot of injuries and a lot of death.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, well, to to discuss another edge of your seat descent, maybe we should switch over to the lunar module. And as a way of introduction to that, one of the things I always remember thinking when I was younger was when I saw pictures of the Apollo eleven lunar module. I thought that doesn't look like a spaceship. What, what, what was uh, what was wrong with my thinking there? Like why why uh, why is it that that doesn't look like a spaceship and that's okay?
1: Yeah. So if you look at the, the command module, that's the module in which m- the men spent most of their time, that looks like a gumdrop. Mm-hmm. It has a, it's a triangular shaped thing. And it's triangularly shaped because its first part of its voyage has to get from the ground on Earth up to orbit and then on to the moon. So it needs to be as sharp and angled as possible. And then when it comes back down, it needs to blend in forward and land in the ocean. So everything needs to have sharp edges. You know, sports cars, your Hummer is not a sports car because it doesn't have the angled lines of a Porsche. You need something that's going to go through the atmosphere, needs to be sharp so that it can cut through the atmosphere. The LEM's not doing that. The lunar module can look like an ungainly monstrosity because it's never going to fly in earth atmosphere it's only ever going to t- taste the vacuum of space and so it doesn't need to be sharp it doesn't need to cut through anything and so it you could basically make it look however you want and so the joke was they always called it the bug and it really <laughs> like the the two little tiny triangular windows on the front and then the the hatches and various things you can, it's got eyes it's got a mouth it looks like it's got a nose and yeah it's 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 so ugly, it's beautiful. It's not certainly something that was designed to look pretty. It was designed purely for functionality. And they could do that because it was never going to uh, ever
0: taste atmosphere. All right, time to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. And we're back. You, you tell some uh, excellent stories about the design of the lunar module, about uh, what company that was doing. It was a Grumman that was making it? or Yeah, uh, north, yeah. Of Gr- north of Grumman. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think it was north of Grumman at the time. That was a later fusion of two companies. I believe it was just the Grumman Corporation at that time.
0: Uh, but yeah, you talk about like the all the design phases and all, all the problems they encountered as they went through. Do you, uh, do you want to get into that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Mike Lisa was the guy that we interviewed at Grumman, who was one of the test engineers who basically helped build and, and test this thing before it went to space. He was another of my favorite interviews. He was just so infectiously excited to talk about this. It even to this day, he worked at Grumman for his entire life. He still lives in the exact same New York house that he lived in when he was working on building the LEM. Um, and even to this day, he's retired and he's a docent in a museum. And he still just kind of like is there to answer questions about one of the Luger, they have one of the Luger modules um, at his museum in New York. And I believe it's Brookhaven um, because that's where they were They were all built. He was so just, his his gushing enthusiasm for this program was so much fun. And when you go through a, his wonderful New York accent, it just made him, made him so memorable. But yeah, the things that they had to do to make sure that this thing could survive blast off for one and then lunar descent and take off for another. They, they built, and there's some stuff that again, and I'm sure you can understand this with your own podcast. There's so many things that get cut for yeah. time or whatever, And you're just like, oh, I wish I could share this with the world. And some of the stuff, and we do share this to some degree, but they built these shakers, basically massive, massive speakers. Um, And just like if you have a speaker in your house and you put something fragile on top of it and you crank that thing up to 11, it, it just starts shaking everything off and shaking everything in your house. Well, that's basically what they did to the lunar module. They tested every little component individually and then Constructed the lunar module and then put this thing basically on top of this giant speaker for what isn't, all intents and purposes, a giant speaker and shook it, and shook it until it fell apart, just to see how long it would last, where were the, where were its strengths, where were its physical weaknesses, they would turn it upside down and shake it to see what fell off, and every time something fell off, you know, production stopped, and they would go and remachine that piece and fix it again, because it had to, it had to withstand both the stress of a launch, and of course, getting to and from the moon, and the lunar module, of course, is two separate spacecraft, right, it's, it's got its ascent stage and the descent stage in the bottom, the, the Descent stage stays on the moon once they blast off and it basically becomes the the launch platform for the ascent stage when it when it takes off. And so there's just so many the 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 amount of technical difficulty and complexity in all of these machines is breathtaking. It's why the, the HBO series from the Earth to the Moon is a spectacular series. But my favorite episode is the episode called Spider, and that's the episode in which you follow the guys along as they're building Lunar Module. It's not even doesn't even really take place in space until the very end. It's just about a bunch of the guys on the ground trying to figure out how to build something no one had ever built before. These guys all designed and built aircraft. They designed and built the, the the kind of aircraft that, you know, that the guys are flying when they're flying over Korea or that they're flying as test pilots. And now all of a sudden they're building a spacecraft that is never going to taste atmosphere and no one's ever done it before. You know, like so much of Apollo was we're building and doing things no one had ever done before. We don't even know necessarily what we're doing. We're just, we're kind of flying blind and giving our best guesses and and using really nascent science and and technology to kind of okay, fingers crossed, hope this works. And we, of course, we pulled it off. Not (laughs) once, but, you know, a dozen times.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, speaking of uh, from the Earth to the Moon, that reminds me of something I I wanted to ask you about. So a lot of times on the show, we end up talking about the interaction between science fiction and real cutting-edge exploration or experiment. Uh, There's just one example that stuck in my memory from years ago. I remember reading that Uh, I don't know if you came across this, but remembering that during the planning phase, there was at least at some point someone had a concern about the lunar regolith and the idea that – so like the soil covering the surface of the moon, that it might be so fine-grained that it would function as a kind of quicksand and that the lunar module might sink into the moon or become stuck in the soil after landing. I I don't know if you get into that later or – uh, or if you in, encountered that concern, but that was like a, a gem in my mind uh, because it, of course, turned out not to be the case. But I'm struck by how much that sounds like a scene from a pulp sci-fi story, like, from, you know, mm. something that might be published in amazing stories.
1: Um, 100%. Yeah, and it was something. It, so uh, it, speaking, one of the one of the astronauts, one of the moonwalkers I spoke to for this podcast was Harrison Schmidt, who mm. flew aboard Apollo 17. And I brought those very things up with him, and we do address those in uh, Episode 5, which is our, the, the actual moon landing mission, the, the day we landed on the moon. And um, he said those things were concerns for, for several scientists. They were not really concerns for NASA. They mm-hmm. didn't buy into all of that. Um, he said it was actually one particular scientist who was an, who was an eminent astrophysicist um, whose name eludes me at the moment, but who kind of went off on some crazy rabbit trails uh, when it came to landing on the moon. But yes, they did think that the lunar module might hit the lunar surface and then suddenly just sink beneath it like quicksand. They were concerned that the lunar regolith might, when exposed to oxygen, um, spontaneously combust. And so even though I say that almost everyone at NASA didn't think that was going to happen, I should also say that Neil Armstrong's mom was convinced it was going to happen, (laughs) and when he climbed off the ladder, he tethered himself, and when he took his first step, he kind of bounced and then stepped back and then realized, okay, nothing's happening. I'm going to be okay, Mm -hmm. and then later, when they got back into into the lunar module, they took some of that regolith with them and put it on top of the ascent engine cover and then started slowly bleeding uh, atmosphere and oxygen back into the into the cabin. But they only had a little bit of it exposed because they wanted to test, is this thing going to catch fire? Are we going to explode? If it is, we want to make sure that it's just this tiny bit and then we can determine But if this is going to go wrong. But nothing caught fire and, of course, they were fine. And, of course, they were covered in lunar regolith. And it's not, you know, so all of that stuff, we'd already landed, the Russians had already landed a spacecraft on the moon, unmanned spacecraft on the moon, and those didn't sink. And, of course, the lunar module, when it set down, didn't sink. So I'm sure Neil was pretty convinced it wasn't going to happen. But, yeah, that was absolutely a fear with a lot of people. They, You know, it's one of those, like I said, we'd never done this before. You'd, you had no idea what was going to happen.
0: Uh, yeah, and as far as combustion goes, I mean, I, I can't imagine how much the specter of what happened with Apollo 1 would have, you know, haunted everything that came after there. Sure.
1: And it's not as if regolith isn't scary stuff. So yeah. regolith, like you said, is the, is the powdery surface that's on the, on the top of, of the of the lunar surface and it is fine-grained. It is like talcum powder. It is, is is ash. It is so incredibly fine but it is also so incredibly sharp because on Earth you have erosion, you have wind, you have water, you have all these things that take the sort of stuff, that, the sort of fine-grained sand and, and stuff like that and wears off all of those edges over time. On the Moon, that doesn't happen. There is no wind. There is no erosion. There is no water. And so everything, if you look at it under microscope, is incredibly sharp and incredibly jagged. And while Neil and Buzz were pretty conservative when they were walking on the moon, later crews started to get much more, uh, I should say, when they were doing their exploring, they they were bouncing around, they were jumping, they were falling, they were rolling, blah, blah, blah. That regolith started actually Cutting, open their spacesuits and releasing oxygen. They later found, um, and it would get into the equipment and start ruining equipment. I mean, it was just it was dangerous stuff. It's still something that you know on return missions to the moon, we have to be very careful of. You don't want to traipse this stuff around because just a little of it, too much, too much of this, you know, talcum powder on your on your flight suit or on your astronauts uh, uh, EVA suits, and it's going to start cutting cutting holes in it.
0: It's horrifying. I mean, (laughs) uh, yeah, I've read about that some before, like the idea of creating a a permanent lunar habitat. You'd need some kind of like clean room or something in between to uh, to get in and out uh, to deal with the regolith problem. But uh, to bring it back for a second to the idea of science fiction, one thing that just crossed my mind earlier today was how strange it is that... Uh, so of course, you know, you had a, a long tradition of stories about space flight and going to the moon. You know, the, the astronauts themselves made reference to Jules Verne and and uh, what's it, uh, Voyage to the Moon, or to or That's how we got the name Columbia for the for the command module. Oh, that's right, straight, yeah. from, straight from Jules Verne. Yeah, uh, but the other one that was crazy for me to be to believe was that 2001: A Space Odyssey came out in 1968, a year before the moon landing, and I'd always right. had it the other way around in my mind. Um, so do you have a sense of how the public's view or maybe even with some of the people involved, how their view of space exploration in the late 1960s would have been influenced or colored by their engagement with science fiction?
1: Oh, it, it absolutely drove people like Werner von Braun and even his Russian counterpart, Korliev, uh, in in Russia. Uh, these guys were avid consumers of science fiction. And this was back in a time even before like the movies really started getting big. You had pulp science fiction. You had all of these, um, not only books, but you'd have magazines that came out with short stories that Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and all of these, like, science fiction giants were writing at the time. Um, Those guys were eating those things up, and it absolutely drove them to do what they did. I have a dear friend who works at NASA, and I once told her, you know, something about— How much I love science fiction, how it's my favorite genre and how Star Trek specifically is my my all time favorite piece of art that humans have ever made. Um, And and I said and she said something like, well, you know what you play in you play in fake space. I work in real space (laughs) and I and I told her, yes, but you are surrounded by people. The only reason they are working in real space is because they were inspired by this fake space. This drove so many people, whether it be the people who designed the Saturn V and all these rockets, or, or it inspired them to become astronauts. You know, for the last 50, 60 years, people, the space program is populated by real people who were entirely energized and inspired by the, the thoughts and imaginations and, and sort of wild, fanciful stories that were created by uh, science fiction.
0: So in addition to just motivating people to want to explore space, do you ever get the sense that, that science fiction at all – colored people's assumptions about w- what would happen in space and space exploration.
1: Oh, ab- yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if I have any specific stories, but yeah, mm. you certainly, in doing this kind of research, come across those sorts of things. I mean, even like you brought up earlier with the the regolith thinking people were going to sink and stuff like that, you know, going uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon in July of 1969. We already have two decades of of really hard of not hard sci-fi, not in the in the technical term of that sense, um, but you have you've got a lot of science fiction movies by this time, and those science fiction movies are you know go every, everything back from. Some of the early sort of French filmmaking in which you have little, you know, Jules Verne sh- ships being shot out of cannons and landing on the moon, and little guys popping out and encountering all of these crazy space aliens, and of course they're not wearing spacesuits. But nobody knew. Nobody knew what what was on the moon. I mean, obviously in the late '60s and stuff like that, we'd been studying it. And it did, but back in the early days, nobody knew. People thought that there were – people thought they saw vegetation and rivers and and, and animals and stuff on the moon when they started to look through, like, proto-nascent telescopes and stuff like that. So, yeah, absolutely, you had science fiction that was coloring the assumptions of – Everybody going forward. And, you you know, that kind of had to run smack dab into science and people going, OK, that's that can't possibly be true. Or, you know, we know there's no atmosphere. OK, that's going to remove any sort of ideas of, of life, at least as we know it existing on, on the surface of the moon. So, you know, there's that. But, yeah, it, it absolutely colored colored everything. It, it's one of those things that. Like in any enterprise in human life, once you do the thing, once you make that exploration, so many of those assumptions, of course, fall away in the face of facts and evidence and science and whatnot. But before someone is bold enough to make that first step and can either confirm or disprove it, um, it you know it remains an open possibility.
0: There was one quote uh, that I may have been in your first episode that I that I really liked. It was uh, I believe an astronaut named Dick Gordon, or was he an astronaut, or did he just work with? Uh NASA. Where he, anyway, sorry, the quote is, uh, he says, what did we discover when we went to the moon? We discovered Earth. Uh, and th- this seems to be a common sentiment among a lot of astronauts that they have a, a different kind of view of uh, of life on Earth after being in space.
1: Yeah, Dick Gordon was an Apollo astronaut and his impression was almost universal. Um, even, even the Apollo 11 astronauts talk about that Seeing the Earth from a distance um, was more life-changing than even walking on the Moon, um, and almost to a man, every single one of them said that they just their lives were transformed. Harrison Schmidt, ironically, is one of the only ones who didn't kind of have some euphoric experience, and I don't know if that's because he was much more of a grounded scientist or whatnot. But everyone kind of came back. Their lives changed. Some people found God. Some people came back and became artists. They just wanted to try to communicate via their art and their painting and, and sculptures and stuff like that, what they what they learned from seeing the moon and from seeing the earth. Um, a lot of them came back very seriously engaged in and promoting uh Conservation and 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 environmentalism and stuff like that. The environmentalism movement pretty much kicked off when Apollo eleven took the first picture of the uh, the Earth rise from the moon, and all of a sudden we realized, wow, the Earth is this tiny, fragile little thing sitting in the middle of this gigantic black void. And it just seems so fragile. And uh, another astronaut, I can't remember who it was, described it as a as a Christmas ornament hanging in the inky black of space. And you suddenly realize, oh, okay, this is fragile. We need to take care of this. And the other thing that so many people realized is, hey, from orbit, there are no borders. This is not like a globe where you recognize where one country starts and another country ends. This is ludicrous, the sort of fights and political infighting and and stuff that we have. We are human beings, and we need to be human beings first before we're even Americans, before we're Russians, before we're anything. You get, as Neil deGrasse Tyson would call it, the cosmic perspective.
0: Interesting how that intersects with uh, what we were talking about earlier with uh, John F. Kennedy and, you know, the motivations of the space program being almost purely uh, geopolitical to begin with.
1: You know, there's so much about human life and so many of the things that humans do that even if it's done pursuing one particular thing, we come out of it realizing so much more. It's such a larger experience. It informs so much more about what we are and who we are and how we live and how we should Relate to each other, um, and that's just that's a exactly that's a that's a terrific example of that. We may have done something for one reason, but what we got out of it was so much deeper and so much richer. But it's still a lesson we need to take on board today. I mean, it's clearly something that we haven't uh, listened to enough. You know, we're we're not taking care of our planet like we should. We're still having the same sort of petty political squabbles and one-upmanship, like you know. But at least now we have something to refer back to and say, hey. Knock it off, humans!
0: All right. Well, it's been really great talking to you, Brandon. I, I really enjoyed this, and again, I, I really do enjoy the show. Um, I'm glad to be glad to be able to recommend it to our listeners. So, uh, so thanks so much.
1: Thanks so much. I I hope I hope they enjoy it too. I think they will.
0: Alright, well that does it. Huge thanks again to Brandon Fibbs for joining us today. Uh, If you haven't checked out Nine Days in July yet, you should give it a listen. Uh, I've been really enjoying it and I think you will too. In the meantime, uh, if you want to check out any other episodes of our podcast, you can go to stufftoblowyourmind.com that'll get you there or you can just look up Stuff to Blow Your Mind on wherever you get your podcasts, on iTunes, the iHeartRadio app, or um, you know, you know all the places. Big thank you as always to our excellent Audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can reach us by email at contact at stuff to com Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.